Jeremy Corbyn was elected as leader of the Labour Party this autumn in one of the most surprising twists in modern political history. The veteran backbencher and serial protester won by a landslide, but he now faces a much more difficult fight. He has to win over more than 200 Labour MPs, many of which are hostile to him, and ultimately he needs to persuade the country at large that his old-fashioned brand of socialism is appealing to them. And as the party gathers in Brighton for its annual conference, the FT Weekend magazine has published an in-depth cover story on the new leader of the opposition. I'm Jim Pickard, Chief Political Correspondent for the Financial Times, and with me are Janan Ganesh and Philip Stevens, who are both political columnists. First question, I suppose, are you looking forward to Labour conferences? It's something that you're both going to be watching quite closely. And, and what do you expect the atmosphere to be like? As a voyeur, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I can't think of another conference where the principal party leader is quite so far away from the mainstream as Jeremy Corbyn, where the number two, the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, is quite so far away from the mainstream, where the cabinet colleagues, in this case shadow cabinet colleagues, are very often off the Corbyn page, openly defying him and disagreeing with him on big questions of foreign policy, defence, economics. So as a as a potential car crash, it's going to be interesting. I slightly fear that Corbyn's main speech won't be interesting because he has this far-left tendency to speak as though he's speaking to a rally of people uh, in a small room. He's quite rambling, isn't he? Very rambling. He's not used to being contradicted or disagreed with because he talks to people that, who, who agree with him, typically. Uh, and that can make for a pretty unexciting speech. So uh, maybe the main event won't be very interesting, but the potential trouble will be, I think. But Philip, this is the new politics, isn't it? They don't do things in the scripted way. They're as different to new Labour as you can possibly imagine. I mean, do you think part of his attraction for the quarter of a million people who voted for him was the fact that he's so different and he doesn't play by the rules? And, and, and what do you think the consequences of that are going to be in terms of party management and, and everything else? I think it's a bit odd to call this the uh, new politics. I mean, I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn is uh, stuck in the politics of the 1970s. He's a throwback. So it's the retro politics. Uh, or I think more accurately, we're talking about the new anti-politics mm -hmm. because Corbyn is part of a, a sort of strand that we see across Europe now of people who are basically protesting against the old establishment, the old elites. Some are on the left and some on the right so he does speak for a a slice of the Labour Party or the Labour activists, a big slice and a slice of the population um, but as far as politics in its uh, in its real-world sense of winning elections goes, he's utterly irrelevant. But so. none, none of us several years ago predicted that UKIP would win the European elections last year. None of us predicted that the SNP would not only win Holyrood, but also wipe out Labour in Scotland. Is it, is it possible that we are complacent about the potential Jeremy Corbyn has, just to play devil's advocate? No, I think that we shouldn't be complacent about the destructive capacity of many of these movements. And whether it's Corbyn or UKIP or the SNP, which I think is rather a special case, and I think it was more predictable. Um, but I think a lot of these groupings, and in the rest of Europe as well, have the capacity to bring down the existing house, as it were, to undermine the old sort of rules of politics. But they don't have the capacity to actually win power themselves. And I don't imagine that Corbyn actually would want to win power hmm. um so 
you know, I personally, I think Corbyn in the next year or so, or perhaps even sooner, will blow up. I'm not quite sure how, um, but I'd be very surprised if he's still Labour leader in two years' time. I spoke to one MP for the magazine piece called Graham Stringer who said it's impossible to know whether it's going to take two weeks or seven years before before he's ousted. Um, but Jinan, I mean, how, how do you think ordinary Middle England voters somewhere like Nuneaton or Swindon or, or Gloucester, how, how do you think they'll react to him and when they get used to him? And, and do you think it's his economic policies that would alarm some people? Do you think it's security, foreign affairs issues that, that might get their backs up or, or what? Well, you, you're right to point to the difference between the two issues my guess is what will initially upset people are his views on cultural and security matters so his previous comments on paramilitaries on uh, western foreign policy towards the middle east will be more sensational than the fact that he wants a higher rate of um, income tax at the top end or that he wants to bring the railways back into national ownership Mm. those are views which actually in some instances are, are individually quite popular the economic views whereas his cultural position on the sort of morally relativist bit of the left, the post-1960s bit of the left, uh, is much more provocative. And I think your average voter in those seats which Ed Miliband, the previous Labour leader, failed to win in May, Nuneaton, parts of Swindon, the home counties, the the average voter in those constituencies, I think, will take offence to the cultural positioning of this Labour Party before they even begin to notice any of the economic stuff, which is why I think, although it was a superficially silly story, his failure, Jeremy Corbyn's failure to sing the national anthem hmm. uh, a week or two ago, I think will is one of those things which, when it happens, seems trivial, but ends up lasting years and years and years in the back of voters' minds, a bit like the fact that Ed Miliband took on his brother to win the leadership. I think it was funny in September 2010, then we sort of forgot about it as a political class, but I wonder whether your average British citizen who doesn't pay much attention to politics regarded that as a as a defining thing about Ed Miliband. Whenever I do Vox Pops, which is very often, someone always says they picked the wrong brother. They still remember that five years later. But Philip, I mean, just in terms of Jeremy Corbyn, and he was someone who's always been surrounded by fellow travellers from the, the hard left. And over the summer, he's seen great rallies of people applauding him, agreeing with him. Do you think he's kind of been cocooned from what people in somewhere like Nuneaton actually think? Yeah, I think um, what you have to realise is to be on the far left or to be on the far right, indeed, of politics is to lead a very comfortable life. You go round, you speak to people who agree with you, you're basically unchallenged by the media, by academia, by policy makers. So for 30 years or so, Jeremy Corbyn has talked about, you know, the success of Chavez in Venezuela or the iniquities of Israel in the Middle East to people who just wanted to cheer. One of the reasons I think, as I said, he will, quotes blow up is I think he will find the leadership, the scrutiny, the intensity of having, I mean, being leader of the opposition party is a terrible job. The one reason to do it is the expectation or the hope that you might be prime minister. Well, I don't think he expects or even hopes to be prime minister. He he says in our magazine piece this weekend that he can be prime minister. He says, I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. But that, that doesn't really tally with what he was telling his friends at the start of the leadership contest, does it? I mean, of course, he has to say that. 
Um, otherwise, what's the point? But I think in his heart, he knows that he's not going to last five years of high intensity. And the uh, clashes, the, cl- the clashes between uh, this grassroots who support him, he got sixty percent more than all the other three candidates put together. But he has a parliamentary Labour Party where only twenty people support him. And I spoke to Tom Harris, who's a former MP who lost his seat in May, um, who was saying. You know, the prognosis could not be worse. We can't have a leader like Jeremy Corbyn and not expect to be wiped out. But the way that Tom put it is he said it's like a, an unstoppable force, which is this man with his absolutely huge mandate, and then an unmovable object, which is the PLP. And we've already seen, Janan, haven't we, a few times where he's already having to adjust his radical policies in the face of hundreds of MPs who, who have much more mainstream views than him. Yeah, just to cobble together a shadow cabinet, he had to uh, make some concessions on policy. Um, I, I can see uh, why there's a, a an, an unstoppable force in the sense that a lot of Labour MPs will want him gone. But I think the immovable object might turn out to be Corbyn himself in that, yes, he himself is a slightly um, otherworldly figure, but he has some very practical people around him who are good at political street fighting. Uh, and the principal example is a guy called Simon Fletcher associated with Ken Livingston when he was mayor of London going back to the 1980s, a group called Socialist Action. And they're, they're, they're very obscure, and it's sort of what, what used to be called a group askew within the overall politics of the Labour Party. But they're phenomenally good at organising branch meeting to branch meeting, committee to committee, corridor to corridor. They're very good at mechanical politics. And that, I think, will extend Corbyn's leadership a bit longer than it would otherwise have a natural life for. So if he, ordinarily, if we assume that Corbyn would be... Would, blow apart, I agree with Philip, within a year. I wonder whether Simon Fletcher and some of the people around him can preserve him for another year beyond that. So and there, really... there's a lot of kind of arcane structures within the Labour Party bureaucracy, aren't there? Things like the National Policy Forum and the National Absolutely. Executive Committee and the Subcommittee and the Conference Arrangements thing. And you already have a process where some of his acolytes are trying to get places on these boring-sounding committees because gradually they need to secure more power and they're not going to have it in the PLP. But I think I think one thing stopping MPs from clubbing together this week or next week or even in a year's time is that they know that if they get rid of him, the decision goes back again to this selectorate of 600,000 people who would once again either pick Jeremy Corbyn if he stood again or someone from his wing of the party. And until they can change those minds through some form of persuasion, I don't know how they do that, they're a bit stuck, aren't they? I think this is a really worrying thing for the Labour Party. You're right to say that if there's a leadership uh, uh, coup against Jeremy Corbyn, his name automatically goes into the subsequent ballot. So you, you haven't really got rid of him in that instance. Um, and even worse than that, the far left are already cultivating a successor to Jeremy Corbyn, knowing that he's um, um, in his 60s, isn't a long-term option. And it's uh, a woman called Lisa Nandy, who I think was elected in 2010, mm-hmm. and is seen by the far left as a slightly more um, worldly and presentable version of the same politics that Jeremy Corbyn espouses. So if the Blairites and the moderates think that simply by dispatching Corbyn relatively quickly, they've dealt with the problem of the far left, they're, 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 they'll be proven wrong because and this is a stubborn part of the He's put Lisa into the role of shadow energy secretary and you know, immediately she's come out and said that she approves of new power stations such as Hinkley Point, which is completely at odds with Jeremy Corbyn's not wanting any nuclear power or nuclear weapons in the world. So, you know, once again, we're seeing this clash between what his colleagues think and what he thinks. I think the point here, though, is I don't think anyone will, from the from the Blairite or moderate, whatever, wing is going to move against Corbyn. They're going to wait for him to fall. I also think, actually, you know, all those votes 
um, for Corbyn were not hard left folks. Mm. The the power in the Labour Party um, lies with what, what used to be called the soft left. And these are the people, the enthusiasts, the idealists who were brought brought in and followed Corbyn. So what will matter when he goes is where that group goes. So here's my, I'm um, sticking my neck out, here's my bet for the uh, next Labour leader, and it's Alan Johnson. And he would have to be, uh, he would have to be, Sort of frog march to to do the job. He's, he's not turned, been keen before, has he? He's not. He's not been keen before. But a politician like Alan Johnson, trade union background, you know, soft left sort of um, uh, hinterland, mm. um, I think could win easily sufficient of those people who voted for Corbyn. And it would be the equivalent of Michael Howard stepping in when the Tories win disarray after after Hague and IDS, wouldn't it? You know, it was Neil Kinnock, it was the soft left, if you like, that led the Labour Party back to electability during the the 80s, or at least set the direction. I mean, the direction for Blair was set by Neil Kinnock and the soft left. So Corbyn will have to be replaced by someone in that sort of political spectrum. And another question for you, Philip. I mean, you know New Labour better than almost anyone. What what do you think went wrong in terms of the Blairites? They got 4.5% for their candidate, Liz Kendall... Do you think they just failed to put up um, a contemporary argument that resonated with their own people, or do you think they were they were playing to the country and not to the selectorate, or what what happened? Well, I think Liz Kendall is um, a very uh, intelligent and uh, and good politician, but I don't think she has natural leadership qualities. But I think that uh, you know one of the reasons for Corbyn, um, one of the big reasons, is the absence of a quality alternative. I think none of the candidates who stood for the leadership had appealed. None of them had, if you like, the combination of political courage, charisma, stature to actually be able to stand up and challenge um, Corbyn. So, and Chinan, when you talk to Labour people, what, how do you describe the mood? I mean, we've we've got this guy now in charge of the party. He's he's sixty six. He's never had any responsibility. His hobbies include taking photographs of manhole covers, according to our FT magazine piece count this weekend. What, what's the general mood? Well, some of them are behind the scenes of left, so not MPs, but uh, senior party staff, both at, both at Party HQ and in as shadow cabinet advisors, have just chosen to leave politics altogether, at least for the time being. MPs don't have that option. They're stuck there for the next five years unless they want to provoke a, a by-election. And the mood I detect is... Um, and this is the constructive side of it, a little bit of intellectual inquiry in the sense that people like Chukaramuna and Tristram Hunt and Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper, all sort of moderate MPs, have gone more or less to the back benches, not just to sit and throw stones at the front benches, but to set up inquiries into what a new Labour manifesto might look like five years from now. I mean, people are right to say that the new Labour manifesto began to look stale, Blairite ideas began to look a little bit stale, and it was one of the reasons Liz Kendall's candidacy never took off. It was not obvious what distinguished her from a Blairite platform of 2001. And I can't help thinking that these guys are only going to succeed when they're no longer called Blairites. I know it's a label that we apply to them, but it, it just it now sounds like something of 20, 15 years ago. Then The name is no longer helpful to them, at least within the party. Mm. I'm not sure it's quite as toxic nationally as we sometimes in the political class um, assume. But the admirable thing about them is that they're not being disloyal for the sake of it. They are trying to build 
I think, five to ten big ideas that would define a new Labour modernising platform in five years' time. And that's exactly what Liz Kendall failed to do this summer and why she didn't do very well. I think we're going to wrap up now. But can I just ask you, if you were to put a time period on how long Jeremy Corbyn is going to last as leader of the opposition, uh, Janan? Uh, I think he'll go after the Europe referendum, which is 2017, probably. One to two years, but perhaps less. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 